Nice. We are live. Round two with Dr. Jay Sanguinetti. Thanks for coming on. Here. So good to see you again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you too. And so much has transpired for us both since we first talked. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this conversation and how it unfolds. Me too. <clears throat> Been looking towards for, towards this for a while, so very good to see you. A lot has happened since 2019. <laughs> it's so interesting how much the synthesis of science and spirituality is becoming more mainstreamed. Yeah. Yep. I, I think the pandemic has played a big part in that. You know, it was already going on before uh, with things like Michael Pollan's book on uh, psychedelics and their potential healing powers. Um, but, you know, I think the pandemic has really given people the chance to take a step back, uh, see what's important and what's not important and sort of get rid of a lot of the fluff in their life and start focusing on sort of inner well-being, inner practice for some people, spiritual practice uh, or contemplative practices like meditation and yoga. And, you know, I think it's helped center us in a lot of ways. It's, of course, hurt a lot of people deeply as well. Um, but, you know, I think that sort of comes with the territory going through something like this. Yeah, it's becoming more popular for people to be talking about the turn inward. Mm -hmm. And that's fascinating. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And, and that's almost where the seat of unity is. It's, it's all around us in every inhale, but it's most in a sense anchored in its truth when we turn inward and recognize that indescribable name that we are that is infinity expressing it and when we and especially when we drop the mind to the heart and then that that's sort of where yeah, where this unity and this oneness really begins emanating also from that, from that turn inward. And so it's so nice, yeah, to see it becoming more mainstream and and also for science to be giving so much more excitement and funding and allocation of resources to this. And we were talking about this before we started, but the EPRC and having Dan Ingram on the show as well, and you guys being a part of that, and also around everything that's transpired with Sema Lab, which we'll talk about more as well, and the nuances around the findings around how uh, neurostimulation, neuromodulation can positively affect people's mindfulness, um, their feelings of coherence and oneness, and uh, and just brain and behavior also, and this is gonna this is gonna be so so pumped to unpack this. Cool. Yeah. Lots to talk about. Cool. <laughs> let's let's do this, Jay. So let's maybe take this from the 
um, from where, like from where we kind of left off and where you guys are at now, the last two years have been, you know, intensely filled with um, bringing forth these realizations of the synthesis of science spirituality to mainstream and showing this empirically with data. So let's let's unpack that. So take us through that journey and then we'll pull up visuals and stuff as we go as needed. Sure. I think the last time we spoke, uh, I was had just left the Bay Area where um, I really was pivoting my entire research career towards what's what's called contemplative neuroscience in the field. So uh, scientists, I think maybe rightly so, are a little bit afraid of the term spiritual and spirituality, um, partly because it's ill-defined. Um, you know, what's the spirit? Uh, how do you measure that in an MRI scanner? Um, <laughs> so, right, which, you know, has its own problems and we can get into that. But, you know, I think what you're talking about is inner experience trans- transforming. People can have transformation of their inner experience, their inner life, their inner world through lots of things. Having a child falling in love, uh, somebody near you and dear to you dying and passing away, um, psychedelic intervention, lots lots of ways. Sometimes it just randomly happens to people. Um, so, you know, there's lots of ways to have that inner experience transform. And there are practices that have been cultivated <clears throat> throughout, you know, 2,500 years or so to intentionally cultivate inner well-being, inner happiness, and inner self-understanding. Uh, with, in Buddhism, for example, the ultimate goal of enlightenment or reaching nirvana. Um, and so what's really exciting right now and sort of where my life has pivoted is that science is starting to look at these practices and ask, what the heck is going on? Um, and many scientists are actually starting to do the practices and going, whoa, <laughs> my inner world is changing. I want to study that. I want to know what is that. And ultimately, as scientists, we want to help. We want to use science to help reduce suffering and help the world. And so many of us are looking at these practices and saying, is it possible to strip away the stuff that we can't study, like the religio-social stuff? the religious stuff, is it possible to strip that away, keep the practice and, and find something meaningful for people? Um, or do you need some of the religious stuff? That's also a possible, uh, you know, finding that we'll come to as well. Um, but that's really where we are. You're sort of merging these practices that come from religion and spiritual practices with science and asking, is this a possible paradigm for the future? Now, many of us like myself and like you who do these practices like mindfulness, uh, yoga, other things, uh, we have a deep intuition that this will work, <laughs> that you can blend this stuff with science, create a new paradigm and make it useful for not just weirdos like me and you, but for everybody. You know, uh, I've got family members down in Mississippi who want to use this. I've got friends in, in Boston and Baltimore. I've, I've you know, my collaborator Shenzhen is working in China. You know, can we make paradigms that are useful across the board, independent of your background and your inner experience and your past experience and your socioeconomic status and all of that? Can we help people transform their inner lives so that we don't have to go through a pandemic to ask the question, what's meaningful for me? <laughs> you know, can we just use these tools in the first place? So, you know, that's kind of where we are. We're at the very early stages of 
blending um, what are called the wisdom traditions with Western science and trying to see like what falls out. And, you know, truthfully, I don't know what falls out of it. I think the new science is going to be quite different than even what we think today. But we're at the very beginning of trying to make this a real grounded, you know, empirical scientific paradigm. And it's super exciting. Okay. So what seems to be reoccurringly critical in this process is the simultaneous of the wisdom traditions with the Western science mm-hmm. and yet also a mainstreamification of the benefits, the applied benefits um, mm-hmm. globally. So let's, let's play with, with, um, okay. Let's play with like the mainstreamification and the, in the um, and the very sort of simple boiled down essence of what we're doing with blending the wisdom traditions and uh, and Western science, because mm-hmm. it really boils down to simple things like increased happiness and less suffering, and more openness, more equanimity. Uh, these types of things. This is sort of what the the core potentially is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd add self understanding and uh, service to others is probably the deepest one. Um, so beautiful. yeah, there's lots of components that go into it. Mm-hmm. Yep, and you might want to also, you know, <clears throat> it's fun to play with the, the the benefits and the positive, but we can also bring up all the uh, pitfalls and and. Uh, the walls that can emerge with this. So there's also the commodification, the the MIC mindfulness that's also happening, the sort of, is there too True. much stri- stripping away? Uh, can you strip away the practices to the point where they're helping with attention and you can shoot a basketball better, but they're not getting at these things that we just outlined. So, you know, that's the other end. And the nice thing about science is we can address those questions. Uh, and if we're being careful and you know, upfront with our science, we should be, you know, creating paradigms where we can catch that as well. Um, otherwise, we'll just be looking over at the benefits and not realizing that they may be causing some damage at the same time. Yeah, very important point. Um, very, very important point. Yeah, and a lot of it is really bo- it boils down to extracting out the most signal, um, the most essence and then um, distilling that to mainstream most relatably. And uh, yeah, not getting lost in the, the commodification of things um, or in all of the noise um, as well. So that's that's great. So, okay, so let's take, um, let's take a, like a classical um, um, portion of, of neuroscientific research. So um, 
we've we've been hearing a lot about how um, excessive rumination in uh, default mode network seems to be a big culprit of anxiety, um, self-referential um, thoughts about the past or about the future, and that uh, taking people out of uh, peace, out of happiness, out of now, presence, um, out of um, unity and into separation even. Um, so if I'm not feeling peace and happiness, what am I doing? I'm trying to extract peace and happiness. Um, so are we, are we talking, um, when we talked about a month ago, um, we were chatting about things like, um, a decrease in the overactive default mode network and a um, and then there being sort of a, a blossoming of that you were calling it internal transformations that unfold for people and that these internal transformations these shifts you could say from suffering to well-being or prosperity toward oneness away from separation that these sort of things come from a neuroscientific consciousness oriented shift Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So uh, let's define default mode network for people who don't uh, know about it. So it's a region in the brain that's kind of midline that showed up in fMRI studies when people were doing no task. So between tasks and the scanner, sometimes we'll tell people just sit there. It's, you know, 400 to $1,000 an hour to do an MRI. So we usually just record everything, even if they're not doing a task. And what uh, we found, and by we, I mean all my colleagues, not me, um, what we found is that for most people, cross-culture, you tend to see this midline area activate. And that seems to be what people go into when they're not doing anything. It's kind of your default state. It's going to be different for each person because we all kind of default to different sort of defaults. But it's what's happening when you're driving your car and you kind of mind wonder, and yep, there you go. <laughs> Most you know, you classic. Wonder, yeah. yeah, you pick up your phone, you go into Facebook, whatever your default sort of, you know, I don't have anything to do. Let me take five minutes. Uh, most people have the experience of driving their car and uh, you look up and you're like, oh, crap, how did I get here? Right. So your yeah. body was driving and you're up in your mind and your default sort of worrying about the pandemic and whatever politics <laughs> or whatever you got going on. So that's the default state, and it evolved for a purpose. It's there to sort of help us sort of relax a little bit, not be so engaged. If we were constantly engaged with thinking, uh, like problem solving, it'd take a lot of energy. So it's kind of a, a very relaxed thinking state. Typically, people think about their own stuff. So one yes. marker yes. of the default mode network is it's about you. Uh, yeah. So yeah, someone That's said cool. autopilot. So it's autopilot, but it's auto self-pilot. <laughs> um, because oh, nice. it's really like you start worrying, you start thinking, you start thinking about dinner, mm-hmm. you know, you start thinking about all these different things, but it's almost thinking about you. And that's a really salient marker of the default mode network. So interesting. Content auto self-pilot. Different. Auto yeah. self-pilot. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Cool. Me and Rick Henry just came up with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shout out. Let's publish a paper, Rick Henry. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's somebody in the chat. So, um, yeah. Yeah. We know, pulled up his comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we pu- we can pull it up in the feed. Like this. Cool. Like we pulled it there out. We go. We were oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. You'll Welcome see. You'll see more of those throughout. Yeah. 
<laughs> we also so, had this earlier. The super excited for Dr. J's work. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Nice name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Cool. All right. Yeah, so the, the DMN, the default mode network, is it's really there to maintain self-processing. You can think of it that way. Um, we're still learning to about it. So kind self, of self-processing. So maintain oh, self-processing. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Cool. Uh -huh. That's that's the way I think about it. There's a lot of debate in the literature about this. Different people think different things, but what we do know God, is I that, like that. Uh -huh. well, if you think about the the self from the point of view of like trying to create it, which is I think what the brain is doing in the body, totally. it's a big process. Totally. It's a lot of activation and processing and computation. You know, the self is not an easy thing to make, and then once it's made, it needs to be maintained. If someone hurts your feelings, yes, you need to think about point. it, right? Like, why did they say, why did Alan say that thing to me? I got to go think about that. Does that mean I'm stupid or is Alan stupid? I got to, you know, I got to think about that for a little while. And eventually mm -hmm. I have to get myself to a point where I feel okay. You know, I need a baseline level of okayness, but I also need to be able to take feedback from you. Think about myself. Do I need to work on my tone a little bit because Alan said I don't sound good on the microphone. You know, I'm getting all this input and I got to take that in. I got to do something with it and I got to do, do the self stuff. So that's the default mode network. It's super important. We never want to make it go away. But in things like depression, things like anxiety, things like a, a pandemic <laughs> where you're watching negative news, then what can happen in that state is it tends to go negative and negative can go overdrive. And so depression, for example, is like those people just ruminate. They just negative, negative, negative. Every moment they get to think to themselves, it's like the world is burning. Yeah. There's no point. Why is Alan looking at me? You know, that just, just like just goes like that and that and that. And that yeah. then perpetuates Jeez. negative mood and it perpetuates the whole inner sort of uh, what's that Nine Inch Nails song where he's talking about like being in the, the whole right? Like you're just going further and further into that black hole. And uh, that becomes a problem because at a certain point, you just can't get out. Um, now, if you look at the other end, so that would be default mode on hyperdrive. And I can see that in the mm -hmm. MRI. If I take a depressed person and I put them in the MRI, you can actually see too much activation. Now, here's what's interesting. If you take a massive dose of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, uh, MDMA, LSD, any of the major um, psychedelics, the first thing you see is that that default mode network goes zoop, <laughs> mm -hmm. turns way down. And it seems, there's a couple really early studies, but it seems like the more you turn the default mode network down, the more ego death you experience. Yes. Um, and the term in the literature is actually died. Um, oh, I'm forgetting the term, but it's something like, direct ego death it spells died so ego died <laughs> um so and the ego death experience actually predicts clinical outcomes so if you have ptsd patients for example and they take some 5-meo-dmt for and they you know you measure the stuff in the mri scanner those people are good for weeks sometimes after one session if you can get that default network to really shut down and the report of the self 
having a literal ego death, you know, like, oh my God, it was scary. My ego died, but now I see how I can heal myself. You know, it's kind of what people report. Now, those are the two ends of the spectrum with the default mode network. Most people are right in the middle. When you start meditating, guess what happens? That DMN starts going off, but only when you meditate. So in you're in the scanner and you're meditating, even if I put you in, I would see relative to your baseline that your default mode network is just turning off just a little bit, not, not like a psychedelic, but you know, you're starting to get that to, to decrease. And uh, my friend Judd Brewer published a bunch of beautiful studies where he was showing this in meditators. And so it now becomes a target for intervention. So if I have someone with depression and I have a device that can target specifically the default mode network, can I help reduce their rumination just a little bit so they get, they get a little psychological freedom, right? And Perfect. then if I can get some psychological freedom, can I do some therapy in that state or, you know, get them to interact with their loved ones or work or whatever they need to do so that the system can kind of bootstrap out of that crappy state and into a new state? So yeah, that's the fascination with the default mode network. It's it's a pretty cool thing. We we still don't know too much about it at this point, but yeah, it's it's becoming an interesting target. This is so fascinating. So we could potentially say that uh, evolutionarily, that um, as over the last couple of millions of years, that the the creature, the vehicle of the creature, became uh, advanced enough. Uh, neurophysiologically to be to have a um, a, a, <clears throat> a self-referential model um, mm -hmm. and then to basically perpetuate um, said self-referential model based on biological fitness um, and then um, then it basically, every time that it would not be doing a task, like uh, if it's not hunting or cooking or making textiles or whatever, moving, etc., trading, all that type of stuff, then it's basically in its relaxed state um, between actions um, that it's usually ruminating on what happened in my self-referential model in terms of the past? What can I learn from that? What can I avoid? Like what, what pains can I avoid in the future? Um, and then there's like the future, like a, it's kind of like a Monte Carlo tree search in computer science. So it's like running all these little simulations of future possibilities and trajectories self-referentially. Oh, if Jay does this activity, then Jay will get this said, you know, this fruit up in the tree. Uh, and so, you know, there's this, that there's that activity. So it's almost like the self-referential model, um, that, that relaxed time, uh, turned into like avoiding pain, seeking pleasure. Um, and then that further perpetuated the self-referential model. And it also further perpetuates like uh, like unhappiness with with now, um, with the there's not much gratitude for uh, what it, what is now. Like, what about now? Like, is this not absolutely beautiful? Like, how two seemingly individuated 
humans in a universe are having a conversation across computer technology on a rock orbiting a star. Like, uh, you know, like, you know, you get to a way of being able to describe the now so profoundly that you realize how ridiculous it sounds like for you to take five minutes and then like have to jump on this device and have to incessantly scroll. And you realize that during the five minutes, if you sort of work on this default mode network, you can sort of over time quiet down that excessive stimulation. And then now you're beginning to get into what some of the mystics have also been figuring out is, well, what happens when you have these, these uh, complete uh, cessations of, of, uh, of pain, of pleasure, so of craving and aversion, um, mm -hmm. but also of this self-referential model itself. Um, so that's something that we could probably table and put a little bit further, but that plays directly into what you were saying around entheogens and ego death and, um, and then mm -hmm. these feelings of, oh my gosh, universal consciousness or unbounded energy, infinity, um, emptiness, that all of these things come up and the realization of we're all God. This is all one intelligence at play with itself comes up. And then science is like, how do we compute this? How do we compute this? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, so we'll let's um, let's maybe put the um, the the self-referential model completely sort of a little a little bit further. But it's fascinating evolutionarily how it looks like that's exactly what kind of like upticked over time is that process and how it's potential that would you say that with everything that you're looking at and what Sam is looking at and whatnot, that sort of the default mode network and then also the uh, neurostimulation for um, the decreased overactivity, would you say that that's one of the top findings that you're figuring out? Uh, that's one of the main focuses of the lab. Um, you know, we, we sort of do projects, we can only do so many a semester based on funding and things like that. So we're sort of going at the heart of what we think will, in our lab, actually facilitate mindfulness practice. So that's what we're doing in, in my lab, which is called Simalab. Um, I co-direct that with Shenzhen Young, who's a very uh, well-known mindfulness teacher in the United States. And in Simalab, uh, we're trying to find, we're trying to understand how does the brain change with um, right now, mindfulness practice, but we're interested in other practices. And then once we understand that, can we uh, safely target that with things like neurostimulation or feedback, like neurofeedback using EEG? Can we target those systems while people are meditating to um, give you something that helps you learn the mindfulness skills, um, the mindfulness practice? So, you know, we don't want things that work as dramatically as psychedelics because, and we can get into that. I think, although they work really well, that is a temporary state and that doesn't lead to lifelong change, actually. And I want to be very clear because people are asking here, I think psychedelic interventions are great, great medicines, but it's not just getting the person to the state and, and even to the ego death. I don't think that that will be enough to save humanity from climate change or something as some people are claiming. 
um, you need to have a way to integrate that information, integrate that insight, and integrate the skill of being calm, having equanimity, having a focused attention, um, you know, getting out of the default state when you need to, to, to give your talk on a stage or whatever you're doing. You need, all of these things need to be integrated back into the nervous system and the body. And so really what we're focused on is the first part, how do you understand the brain when it changes with meditation, maybe even psychedelics? Uh, can you target those systems with neurotechnology to help people meditate with more uh, ease? And then if that happens, does that actually help them integrate these practices into their life so that they're happier, they're having better relationships with their family, they're having more fulfillment from walking on a trail in nature, you know, all the things that really we're, we're trying to get to. Um, does all this stuff in the lab translate into life? And that's the hardest part to me, actually, is uh, even with psychedelics, you know, all, most of us probably on this chat here have been to, you know, uh, con concerts and places where people have done a lot of psychedelics. And it, those people aren't often the model human. <laughs> you know, they're beautiful people with lots of insight, but, you know, you probably wouldn't want those people running society. <laughs> so, so there's got to be some other trick uh, to help us integrate these things in a way that are pragmatic and practical um, for having a society where we all have to interact with each other. Um, and so that's really that integration part. That's the, the last step of the lab. Um, and as you're talking about with identity, um, you know, that's the core, because really what we're talking about is the, the sense of self and its suffering, you know, deeply for all of us, um, if we're being truthful. And some people are suffering with things like depression and chronic pain, but you know, the rest of us are suffering with a lot of other things. And that self is attached. It identifies with that, which is totally understandable and useful. Um, but that stuff can go haywire and it can lead us down a path where ultimately at the end of our lives, we are on our deathbeds and we go, oh my God, why was I so attached to my Porsche 911 and my giant house and my job? Like it's my family and nature and oh my God, climate change is happening and it's, I'm dying and it's 2050. Why didn't I do anything about that? You know, it takes like getting to death before people get there. And that's because of the way that the self is built and what it thinks is important and what it's attached to. And and what, what is threatening, which is a whole big piece of like all this threat, I got to take care of my family, so I got to go work, you know, 70 hours a week and whatever. Uh, realizing that your family could be okay with half the income and you don't need all this crap. And, <laughs> you, know, you know, so, you know, you're really getting at that system of self-identity and attachment and trying to understand how does it work um, and... How can you modulate that in a safe way through meditation practice, psychedelics, you know, sports, all kinds of things will modulate it. But how do you modulate it in a safe way so you still go to work? You're just not so attached to an 80 hour work week. Uh, you realize, you know, you can get the same amount of, of work done with 40 hours and you can have more equanimity. Oh, and by the way, you can have more fulfillment at work. You know, you can get to all that so you can kind of detach and, and get back out and do what's important. And so I think these questions about identity and self and like how those systems work, that's the crucial stuff that we're really working on. That's great because as 
Buddha pointed to with dependent origination that the first link in all of this is from source. What is the identity? What is, is it knowledge or is it ignorance? And knowledge means, knowledge means that you know anatta or, or no self. And then versus ignorance of the means that you are attached to the sense of I, me, mine. And then, mm-hmm. then the cycle of samsara kicks in, which is craving and aversion and indifferences. And that right there is the, you could even say that that's like the core of how this dimension of creation even works. This entire extent of creation appears to play in a way like you have all of this differentiation of all of these costumes where you have this apparent uh, J unit in this apparent Atlas Allen unit, and that then these units uh, have the same underlying essence that everything is a boundless energy at play with itself. But then, fascinatingly enough, on the surface, when it comes into shape, name, form, costume, there is the appearance of it being different, which then further perpetuates the sense of I being here and that sense of I being there. And then that being separate from each other and needing to extract from one another. So the oneness um, becomes veiled. Um, So you could even say that the entire creation plays off of that initial link in everything in as said in dependent origination, that everything is interpenetrating itself as vibration, as energy, even as, you know, quantum mechanics alludes that everything is absolutely non-local. It's absolutely entangled. Um, You can't come to an understanding of how a zero point energy ends up creating uh, the quantum field theory, quantum electrodynamics that then produce said cells that are recursive that make these 30 trillion unit vehicles. Um, it's absolutely mind boggling. And, um, and so then that right there before anything else is if we start with that sense of self, that sense of identity and deconstruct the shit out of it first and foremost, um, that that can then be one of the biggest like rocket ships for us in our awakening. But then there's the simple shit, like you just said, which is very important, which is, bro, you're on a walk. You're literally on a walk. And like, you love like walks. Come on, man. You're not supposed to be thinking about, oh my God, all this stuff in the past or, oh my God, all this stuff in the future. Like we all know that that's not the right way to take a walk. Like you're supposed to take a walk and completely relax and enjoy the beauty of the sun, enjoy the beauty of the trees and of the birds and the bees and enjoy the person that you're with. Be grateful for your life. Be grateful for the air that you're breathing. Be grateful for the water and the food and the roof over your head. And if this is, again, a very simple style of shift um, into that type of a mentality as you're like also Buddha called it a non-meditation that your your entire day's life is not a, a meditation. It, it's, it's not supposed to be something that you go and sit on a cushion, but rather it's an every moment of your life is the very wakeful state. Um, so yeah, so that's really important, resonant, 
Um, and it also makes a lot of sense given what you said with, um, with neurofeedback, because I feel like one of the big things that we're shifting to moving forward is that, um, and perhaps this is something that I don't know if you guys have, have, have been looking into this as well, or are potentially even doing it or know of people doing it, but it's really exciting, um, is, is, uh, haptics for neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you're getting um, a, a tactical signal about when um, you're f- about when you're getting you're getting AI biometric readouts that are then um, signaling to you when you're going into a state of perpetuating your sense of self and uh, craving and aversion versus when you're in a state that's uh, a lot more coherent. And so you haptic feedback along that, um, that process. So, mm-hmm. yeah, what, you know, so what are the types of, um, existing, um, yeah, ways of, I know, really, I love the like fractally nature of, of the play, the tennis that's happening. Cause there's so many ways for you to, for you to play with that. Um, mm-hmm. so take, yeah, if there was a thread that you liked in the last bit, um, you, you can take from that and also just take from the, um, the, especially the leveraging AI and biometrics and neurofeedback on assisting people on mm-hmm. less suffering, more happiness. Sure. I, I was laughing too at the chat. I love it. I, I taught during the pandemic, I had a class with 300 students on zoom and I left the chat open and yeah, it gets fun pretty quickly. Uh, so keep, keep yeah, your chats yeah. going. We'll speak to them. I did want to say one thing in the chat. Um, I, you know, I made a comment about people uh, doing psychedelics and not running the country. Um, I should clarify. <laughs> what I mean by that is any, I, I, like I said, I think psychedelics are definitely healing, especially used in the right context. But I think that Timothy Leary's insight that the set and setting is crucial to the experience that you have and actually the insights that you have. Um, I would take it further, though, and also say what you do after. So the the larger context of what's your intention? Why are you doing these in the first place? And, you know, I've been accused of this in my own research, which is that we have this society that's really looking for the pill, the red pill or the blue pill, right? Our favorite movie, The Matrix, is all about this. You just take the pill and you wake up. Um, That might not be how the nervous system works. It, it, it might be. So there's traditions in Buddhism, for example, that have argued something along that. Once you understand the true nature of yourself and reality, it shifts. Everything shifts. That's a possibility and a, and a hypothesis in science that I'm very interested in. It could also be the case, though, that the nervous system, mine is 37. I'll be 38 uh, this next month. Uh, you know, there's 38 years of neural memory not just in my brain, but in my spine and all the way in every cell in my body. Um, The cells have memory, the DNA probably, you know, RNA, all this stuff in here, all the machinery is shaped by experience. And so, you know, one thing that I'm very careful about, and even in my own thinking, is to look for just this special pill or this special device that I can just put on and it somehow hits the right button and then you're done. Uh, you're enlightened and you see the true nature of reality and everything. And I think that we have built into our psychologies, uh, probably through evolution, this bypass 
there's something built into us that if you take the right mushrooms and, and humans have been taking mushrooms for a long time, it seems like you can have an experience that feels like the truth and you become certain of that truth. And then you start telling everyone about that truth. And then as you talk about it, the sense of self reifies, the ego sort of reifies, makes it more real than it was when you experienced it. And there's there are these sort of psychological biasing mechanisms that we've studied um, in the field for other reasons, but I, I really have sort of been thinking about a paper of, of uh, sort of psychological biasing mechanisms as applied to inner shifts, you know, inner experience. Um, and, you know, Buddhism, for example, has been talking about spiritual bypass and, you know, the sort of pitfalls that you can fall in in Buddhism, uh, the sort of traps that you can get stuck in. There's lots of different traps. Uh, Shinzen, my collaborator, actually writes about this in his book as like four levels as your consciousness sort of gets cleaned up. And at the third level, there's this sort of magic stuff that happens. Lots of weird psychological powers and things that happen. And there's whole sort of sects of Buddhism based on these powers. You can get stuck. And what Shinzen says is you can actually get stuck lateral. So you get in these this power realm. You're, you got Kriyas and you got these energies popping out of your mind and you're seeing the world in a completely perceptually different way. And you start practicing, you start going lateral. So you're gaining more power in this realm and you think you're getting towards enlightenment if that's your goal, but you're actually getting, you're going <laughs> horizontal with enlightenment. You're not going down towards it. You're actually going this way and things are happening and you can talk about them and you're very sure that you're getting closer to enlightenment. Uh, but you're actually in a trap. And I'm super fascinated by these traps because I think uh, there might be a, <clears throat> a sort of a protection mechanism built into us to fall into these traps so that we don't get lost in the void or nothingness, right? Because as an embodied human being, I, I can't hang out in the void all day. I need to feed the metabolism systems in my body. <laughs> I got to get some outer energy in, even if it's not actually separate in some quantum physics way. <laughs> right. And so, you know, the, the, the psychology for some random reasons may have figured out a way to get us trapped into that lateral dimension so that we can keep functioning in the world, even if it's sort of taking us further away from the truth and we're getting stuck in this, what's, what's now being termed a spiritual bypass. We're sort of getting stuck in this experience and the ego is getting looped and talking about it and telling everyone about it. But the psychological cleanup or the development or the growth that actually could be taking place is getting bypassed and you're just telling everyone how enlightened you are. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm equally as worried about that as, you know, creating tech to get people there. And as a scientist, all of this is fascinating, the fact that this seems to happen to people across the spectrum. So anyway, sorry, I wanted to wanted to bring that up because it's a worry that, you know, some of us have. And, and you know, we see it. We see these spiritual teachers, Buddhist teachers, who molest their students and steal and do all kinds of, you know, what seem like horrible things. They are horrible things from the outside. And you got to ask, well, what's going on? This person's been meditating for 60 years and you meet some of these people which i've gotten the, the deep pleasure to meet and they do seem highly transformed from the inside 
And as a sort of psychologist and neuroscientist, I look at these people and I say, actually, I do think that they're real in the sense that they have transformed their inner life. But the way the psychology works is they've just bypassed some of the stuff. And so there's still inner trauma, maybe from their childhood or whatever, that's in the biology that's emerging as a behavior. And they're just have no conscious access to it. They actually don't have awareness, you know, or they do and they have somehow tricked themselves that it's okay because they're helping people or whatever. Right. And so as a scientist, that's super fascinating that that can happen as a person making a piece of technology to try to help more people get there. I also need to be <laughs> highly aware that that's a possible outcome. Yeah, sorry, that was a little bit of a rant. But yeah, this is, you know, the thing is, the point here is some of this isn't free. Just waking up, knowing your true self, uh, seeing the void, having deep psychological insights still doesn't make you a good person. That's a social thing. And that still, I think, has to be developed as a skill. Compassion, for example, empathy. You know, these things may come a little bit for free, but I think you also have to just train your your nervous system to get to those things. Uh, maybe even, even being a good parent. I mean, maybe if you have a child and, and you wake up, so to speak, that may not necessarily make you motivated to take care of your child, you know, so you might need to have some something else there to help that happen. Yeah, this is an point. For me and for many others, what's happened along the journeys is that there are these vertical breakthroughs in terms of realizations, direct experience of more and more of infinite reality. And then what happens is immediately upon realization, what happens upon a vertical integration of a higher density of awareness, love, light, let's say, that then there's an immediate egoification of said realization in a horizontal way um, mm -hmm. where the sense of self almost immediately clicks back at a lesser level, but it clicks back. And the only word that so far that it really encompasses the entirety of the spiritual journey all the way to self-realization and beyond is purification. It's deconditioning. It's mm -hmm. disentanglement. It's unraveling or deconstructing um, all separation, every single last little particle of separation of conditioning. And, and that's the only way to do it if you want to go all the way. Otherwise, like Jay just said, you're going to get stuck at one of these horizontal layers after a vertical realization. And you, you see this all the time. You see people's um, speaking enlightenment, but speaking it um, also quite clearly from a place that has some sort of like visible childhood conditioning that emerging mm -hmm. simultaneously. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's really, really, really important when what Jay mentioned there. And simply because it makes it so that um, you have, re you really have to ask yourself if this is a full, full-time job, because that's what it is. Like the synthesis of science, Science and spirituality and enlightenment and awakening and service to others, like you said earlier, that is a full-time job. It just is. It's a full-time job. It becomes your entire life. You incarnated, potentially, for this exact reason, to come here to awaken and then serve the creation, awakening. And so 
um, this is really, really a critical um, point of, of the conversation. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I, just to pick on that or to uh, springboard off of this notion of purification, um, what's happening in the nervous system in the body is that there's multiple levels, fractals, mandalas, you know, however you want to think about this, it's even, even visual perception, which is my background is like an insanely complicated hierarchy of processing. But that hierarchy is not just in the brain, it's the brain body connection. And it's actually the body to body connection. And it's the body as a people to history connection. And then, and then if you go inside the cell, it's the DNA to history. It's, you know, so this whole thing, like you're, you're a vibration of vibrations, if you want to think about it like that. Um, and these vibrations are all interdynamically acting in the brain and the body. So let me give you one example. I was on a call the other day with one of my scientific heroes. Um, his name is um, Klimesh. And he was, he actually showed that the peak beat, so the heartbeat, if you take the peaks of the heartbeat, let's say, you know, it's so many beats per, per minute, that predicts the alpha peak in the EEG of the brain individually. So right now, if I could record your heartbeat and I could record your EEG, brain electrical activity, I could look at your heartbeat and it would be predicting something very important about your brain activity, right? So they're dynamically nested all the way down. Your brain activity is nested to your heart fundamentally. Um, and so purification can happen, I think, at many different levels. And that's, again, where this trap happens, because I might think that I've cleared my trauma, you know, from something that happened in childhood. Uh, but that trauma may be stored in my muscle memory as much as it's stored in my actual memory that I can consciously access. But again, what will happen is I'll do all this trauma work and I'll purify it and I'll clean it and I'll tell you I've done it, but it's still down in the heart rhythm. <laughs> right? There's another piece that was physical because that trauma that happened to me was a physical thing, not just a mental thing. Um, and so purification also happens at multiple levels and all this is changing. And again, as a scientist, that leads me to think that this is just a lifetime process. So even if you feel consciously that I've purified that trauma and you can talk about it and have insights about it, it's probably not done. And you got to keep doing it. And you probably got to do some practice that got to do some weird body movement practice or whatever, right? There's other things that you're not even aware of yet that are going to be needed um, to actually help the whole system purify and then realign. Um, and again, that's where, you know, I think in the future, we might have a model of that, like in 2100 or something, we'll have a model of what we mean by purification, which is so exciting to me. Gosh, you're so spot on. We're, we're really riding on same, um, vibration there because uh if you think about it isn't to an extent the the model of evolution that we have of the formation of the self-referential entities um isn't there also the same thing in terms of now we have a decon a model of deconstruction and purification of said self-referential entity mm -hmm. to its primordial oneness mm-hmm 
Yeah. So it's beautiful because you can basically find a power law of the most common conditionings and then also a, um, a power law of the most common ways to uh, decondition those conditionings. So um, like one of the most common ones is unworthiness or um, like seeking validation, mm. right? Like I'm going to... I'm going to feel whole by uh, acquiring followers or by um, gaining money or by um, having women like me. Um, that's like the most common one that we fall into. And that if we, if there, that, that also means there's a lip, there's a pattern of liberation from those conditionings of the and seeking validation. And there's nothing more liberating than what I've had in direct experience with liberation from those conditionings. And the more and more it becomes full and complete and realized, embodied in my essence, in my heart and in my gut, the more that I feel like a, I feel like a Jedi or a ninja or I just feel like I'm gliding through the field rather than being a the the fixation and, and attachments on on all those different points that would then f- take you into a vortex and so that's that's also very profound as um, when you think about those nested layers like you said that there's this nested connection it's almost like it's probably has a lot to do with oxygenation like oxygenation of the brain the heart mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. oxygenation and then that enabling the the connectomics to do its thing. Um, so that rhythmic uh, is so that's fascinating. And then, um, yeah, it's it's probably also good for us to to play on. Like, if we were to pull up, um, if we have any of these, if you feel like there's any insights from um, some of these things that we were looking at. Um, together before we started. Um, I think these would be quite helpful for people. Um, mm-hmm. So are we, this is, so you actually were talking about this earlier, but this here is the, is where you've identified as like default mode, sort of between the two hemispheres to an extent. Right. Yeah. In that study here, we're using um, ultrasound. So this is a way to basically get energy into the brain to modulate it. And believe it or not, you can use uh, high-frequency sound to um, modulate the ion channels and perhaps some other properties of the neurons to briefly, safely modulate. We're talking about low-energy ultrasound, less around the same range that they use for fetal imaging with ultrasound. Uh, So you can focus that beam of ultrasound through the skull, and that's what you're seeing here is this red bit um, is where the ultrasound is focused. That's focusing okay. on the anterior cingulate, which is a part of the brain that helps you focus your attention. And we're interested in that for meditation training. Um, but yeah, that's, this is kind of our model. So we're, we're trying to model the ultrasound to make sure it's safe, you know, for where we're targeting for people. Do you feel like um, the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex, do you feel like, so that area you would say is heavily involved in attention? Yeah, it's involved in control of attention and actually monitoring error. And this brings us back to the default mode network. So these, of course, all these networks are interconnected in some way. 
And what's going on with modern person is we're bombarded by threat, fear, you know, the news and all this stuff is tilted towards threatening you to get you engaged. And even Facebook, in a sense, is designed to kind of get you riled up and, you know, threat oriented. They always seem to show you the right people to like push your buttons. And so the anterior cingulate cortex is the part of the brain that's monitoring for those threats and those errors. And whenever something comes at you and uh, you make an error uh, or a mismatch, it sort of sends a signal to another part of the brain to tell you to pay attention. Um, but in meditation, it's probably also the part of the brain that's noticing when your attention wanders and it's telling you, oh, bring your attention back. Right. And that bring your attention back is a really crucial step in training for mindfulness. That's part of the ACC. And so we think that we can upregulate that a little bit while you're learning to meditate. And that'll help you learn that skill a little bit faster. Now, what's really cool about that is that if you meditate for like two years or five years, what tends to happen is that that process becomes automatic and implicit. And so when you talk about the default state, a longer term meditator's default state is to be monitoring for yeah. their attention. Even if they're not thinking consciously, the brain just starts doing it automatically. Uh, that happens to me like after a long retreat, you know, you go for 10 days of meditation and then at the end you're just present and you kind of know where your attention is and what's grabbing it. And you can kind of feel your mind like, oh, I want to go read about Donald Trump. And you're like, ah, look at that. <laughs> Like, maybe I shouldn't do that just yet. I should just stay here. So, yeah, that's the ACC. It's a fascinating part of the brain. Wow. So to an extent, the ACC um, being the um, controlling of attention, um, that to an extent we could say that this, like bringing your attention back could be spirituality has been called uh, abiding so you're abiding as this one infinite mystery rather than abiding as the contracted form of self that's seeking validation externally um, you're abiding in presence energy or in consciousness or in god or self-realization um, mm -hmm. cool yep. I love that word abiding it always after retreats that's the word it's like you're just abiding <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's pretty cool. So ACC abiding, it could be a, a pretty cool neuro. If it's possible to make a like a neuroscientific correlate to spirituality like that, mm -hmm. that would be really cool. Mm -hmm. Nice. Because even during the day, um, like Bentinho Massaro has a really popular aphorism. It goes uh, two to five seconds. Just relax all thoughts, all conceptualizations, all ideas, all discursive thinking. Mm -hmm. And this also dates back to like Dzogchen and mystic Buddhism as well. And it's just literally just for those two to five seconds, just have a cessation of all of this uh, neuroscientific uh, like cascades of the like, triggers of thinking and concepts and discursive thoughts and emotions, actions, etc. And what you do during that time is you abide, right? So you think that's the beauty of it is that if you, if you do this process more and more often, as it's called like samadhi, you kind of go into the state of absorption of meditation, 
that mm-hmm. if you, it, it basically becomes 15 seconds, then it becomes minutes. And then before you know it, you're just sitting there in the middle of a fucking loud room full of people or whatever. And you're in Samadhi for like 20 minutes while you're just in a room full of loud people. And all you are is you're the very field itself that's playing with mm-hmm. itself. You're the whole mm-hmm. thing. And mm-hmm. and you're no you're nowhere and everywhere. And it's indescribable. And that that is um that like you said it's something that's trained it's not something that's pilled um the nervous system can't just pill itself um into that not yet um but yeah but it's cool because you can use entheogens along with uh practices like do nothing meditation or vipassana or just basic mindfulness or going on fucking walks or all these very basic things as well and um, as you do that self-inquiry self-inquiry such a simple one logical as well um that um that the combination of those things will lead you to more and more abiding um so in a sense would you say would you say that it's like a strengthening of the acc um in the beginning it is but then what we find is that as it becomes from explicit or conscious like you have to work at it to implicit uh then the acc goes back to baseline and that's, that's what's so really crazy. cool because that's it's so very, cool it's saying like something more than the ACC is changing. And I I think again, what you just so beautifully described gets back to this question of identity and self, you know, at a certain point you start asking, what am I really? Am I these thoughts? Am I this body? Am I this worry? You know, what is, what's really going on? And this gets into the sort of metaphysics of Buddhism, which is a fun topic. Um, But you know, you start getting insight into what what's really here and how does it work? And and you start watching the body make these connections between emotion and thoughts and, and drives and behavior. But if you can just rest what Shenzhen calls gone, which means just having a rest of, of sensation and perception, and you can abide there for a minute, that's also conscious experience. And you can get to a point what, what, to which some people call non-dual consciousness, which is there's a conscious awareness field that has no content or object or separation or anything in it. It's just this field of nothing, <laughs> of beautiful void, of beautiful nothingness. That's a possible experience that plenty of people report on. And it turns out that the more that you get there through whatever method, <clears throat> the more uh, sort of relaxation and positive vibes you get. <laughs> it's, you know, it can cause you to have sort of weirdness in the beginning, but as you stabilize that, um, it's a bliss. It's, uh, you know, in the jhanic pra- practices, jhana practices, there's PT, the first level, which is just this overwhelming bliss and love and joy. And then you can keep going. You can stabilize that until you get to nothingness. And at a certain point, the system goes, is that me? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Am I also that? Or am I just the thoughts and the body and the attachments and all this stuff? And so, you know, again, for me, that's why the deep, this gets to the deepest question of what am I? 
who am I? What am I identifying with? Why am I identifying with that? And is it possible me for me to identify with not that? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. if I can identify with not that, well, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and you're stepping through and and getting all these insight along the way. So, yeah, fun, fun stuff. Gosh, that's so rich. Yeah, that is. We're really at a. We're really at one of the main. Um, <clears throat> ways that the game is played, um, which has been taught as a uh, netty netty, uh, not this, not that. Um, you really have to um, have a fire under your ass to, to play the game. But um, if the fire under the ass is bright enough and uh, has enough earnestness, then you can play um, the netty netty game shows up. And when it does, um, it becomes something that you perpetually do. It's kind of interesting. So the ACC increase and it's like ability to maintain netty netty or abide and then over time then even that gets transcended because it's not needed anymore and then it becomes a like a it's becomes like an ai like a that runs in the background which is also what buddha said it's a non-meditation which is perfect it's just a again like a wakeful state um yeah cool Wow. Yep. Somebody's asking about depersonalization. So this is um, an interesting experience that people have, you know, in, in the clinic, not just with mindfulness and meditation. Um, this is the experience that you're sort of not in your body or somehow separate in a way that's not functional, usually in the clinic. So this is a diagnosable issue for people. Um, it can happen with certain drug-induced states as well, but it also happens on, on retreats, meditation retreats and yoga retreats. And this is part of the sort of dark side of these practices, that as you're modulating self and as the self, maybe let's say you slip into this samadhi for the first time and nobody told you about it, you weren't warned and you just popped into it, that can be very scary, actually. It's not a fun experience for people. And if you've already got some underlying instability of the self, maybe due to past trauma or something that's unresolved, now you've got a situation where the person, the, the sense of self wants to protect itself. And so it just pops out and you get this depersonalization, derealization problem. Uh, that's happened. It's been reported on retreats. Uh, <clears throat> I have a good friend, Daniel Ingram, who's an ER doctor, and he would have people show up in a state like that at the ER, <laughs> at the hospital, and they get diagnosed as bipolar or schizophrenic or something, um, but it turns out that they're having what's called a spiritual emergency. And uh, Daniel is working very hard to actually get the medical establishment to realize that these people can be treated not with, you know, drugs that they treat something like bipolar with, but actually you just do some inner practice and you pop back into your body and now you know about the void or now you know about samadhi or something, we give you the framework so you can understand what's happening to you. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, that's where basically knowing about these potential alterations of consciousness can be really helpful. But if you don't warn people of it, then it can kind of spin out into this other direction. Um, unfortunately, we're always changing. And so whatever happens to us now has to be integrated into future self. And <laughs> that's just the way the thing works, you know. And another thing is that um, 
<clears throat> who is it that is worried about depersonalization? Mm-hmm. You mean from a subjective point of view? Yeah, and of course, for our, our homie uh, John Ferrer, of course, who posed the question, um, but also in general, um, of course, there are um, what you could call crevices. There are these like crevices that you can fall into, um, like you were describing. It's very, very important um, because if there's not that stabilization, like the landing strip uh, um, community and... and um, and optimal ways to to continue set service to others and set awakening and whatnot. That then there can be issues, but um, which we're we're sewing the fabric well to to um, make there less to be less crevices. But at the same time, this is the exact thing that people run away from. Mm-hmm. This is the number one thing people run away from is the question: Who are you? What are you? What is I? And it's it's the question people run away from because they don't want to depersonalize. They don't want to transpersonalize. That's another yeah. way of thinking about it is transpersonalization. Um, because we've become so accustomed to singularly the individuated unit by itself. And I don't it's really scary for someone to begin being like, well, actually this is the one talking to itself. Mm -hmm. Like Atlas talking to Jay is the one talking to itself. And the field is what it is, is what we are. We are that. And you can't find it anywhere because it's an, it's vibration. It's that emptiness dancing. And yet it's also everything. It's every single one of the atoms it's every single one of the words that are being vibrated across the internet right now and being received in that apparent location. And so now you're really screwed because now you went from a place of like spending years, decades even, cultivating a sense of self and cultivating a um, a, a, men- a mentality that I am going to solidify my sense of self. Um, and now when you're going through more and more of the awakening, um, you're becoming more and more deconstructing of that said sense of self that you were investing so much time into. It's depersonalizing and it's transpersonalizing. And um, you can find that either liberating or you can find it scary. It's your will and choice, whichever way you see it. Um, but I promise you that if you take this all the way, it's kind of like biology or art or any other field. If you basically stop at like researching a protein and you never go all the way to the DNA or you never go all the way to like bioengineering and eradicating pathologies or whatever, or an art, if you stop at paint and you never learn like digital animation or mm-hmm. writing or poetry as well, um, that what will happen is you'll note is that you'll get stuck in yourself in that specific Uh thing and that you won't actually notice all of the beautiful potentiality that exists when you pick up all of the field, when you pick that all up as yourself, because that's where true compassion comes from as well is when you're, when you're coming from a sense of self, compassion is for validation. But when you're coming from a place that's empty of self, when you're coming from a place of the field, compassion becomes more and more incrementally 
completely purely in service. And so that's the big shift as well. You actually, you don't even know how you behave right now into the field until you empty yourself out more and more of your personhood and its conditions and separations. And then you actually gain sensitivity and subtlety with how you put every word into the field. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a whole nother level of, um, of awakening just saying, oh, I'm God. Everything's God. Um, that's, you know, that's one layer um, of it. And then there's more beyond that, which is all the subtleification, the purification, like we were describing. Um, yeah. During our conversation. So, yeah. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's still a lot. I mean, like, I, I know that um, we will, we, we'll wrap um, uh, given we also spent like uh like 45 minutes just preparing, um, with technical, um, technicalities and stuff. So, um, but next time what we'll do is, um, we'll, we already, this is a good, what we did, Jay, is we did a lot of sort of of the preparatory work after this two year. So we took two years, uh, the first two gap was two years. And we, this episode sort of did a good amount of, you could say like the 2000 end of 2021 like foundation so that way if we revisit potentially we could do one of these maybe like three times a year or something like that and Mm -hmm. we could we could revisit every four months or whatever um we could revisit exactly like we can build on top of the foundation like at the beginning of 2022 we can start like building on top of the foundation that we just laid down here and yeah Cool. Sure. Love to. Yeah, we're working on a model of sort of neuroethics that um, shapes the way that we could have this discussion, but also shapes the way that you create the tech so that you you can even ask the question, am I getting into that inner phenomenological space, that inner space of experience? You know, how do I even make sure that that thing is changing in the right way? Uh, the right way is an ethical question, uh, not a scientific question, but you know, we're trying to create a framework where we can use science to test that ethical framework. So I think we've made a nice foundation and sure next time we could, I could give you the model, you know, we could look at that. It'd be pretty cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, actually neuroethics is also a big one with, um, brain mind, Michael McCullough, the brain. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. He's a good friend. And yeah, they're working very hard. They're going to have an Asilomar meeting where they come up with some neuroethics uh, guidelines. And so, yeah, I'm hoping to have something prepared to sort of show at that at that conference. So it's awesome. It's happening. People are Perfect. talking about it and we're asking, you know, we're asking the hard questions and you know, we'll we're gonna get there. We just uh, gotta yeah. get through a couple rough patches as a human species, but and, and as an earth yeah. system. But you know, we're working on it. Everyone I think everyone at, at this point needs to be working on it. <laughs> and also as you do see it as like this hard hardest questions type thing. Also, like, just tune in to the simplicity of the heart at the same yeah, time. Thank you. And, yeah. 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 So so we got to balance that out because it's cool finding the ACC and, and all this unique um, <laughs> insights, like mm-hmm. neuroscientific correlates to abiding or whatnot. Very cool stuff. Um, yet at the same time, it can really boil down to, like, these profound, like, um, I believe Rumi was one of them that said this and maybe Khalil Gibran was another, but just quotes like between all of 
of the words that we speak, so much love is lost. Yeah. And yeah, so you can really mm-hmm. like... That's good. <laughs> you know, you can really boil this down as well in, in simple childlike, heart-like ways too. Very good. So, yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, cool, Jay. Is there another um, important thing that we need to wrap the conversation with or do you feel like we're intention fulfilled? Um, I think we're good. I would leave your your listeners with a concept that we can bring up next time. Um, cool. It's called epistemic appropriateness. And I think it gets to the heart of that Rumi quote, actually. I love that because the question is, what's the point of quantifying the mind and measuring the heart rate and me- even measuring people who can get into a jhana state in the MRI? Like, What's the real point? There's a scientific point to me, which is understand mechanism. And I'm a geek. I want mechanism. But from a human species point of view, what's the point? Um, and this, there's this new phrase uh, called epistemic uh, appropriateness, which basically says, is this Fitbit, is the information that I'm gleaning from it appropriate for me to understand myself? Is it useful or not? And VR, you were bringing up VR. That's another place where we start understanding our experiences through a representation instead of through our eyeballs. And at a certain point, you can get to the point where you're understanding yourself through VR instead of understanding yourself through your own body senses. And that's a really big philosophical, uh-oh, <laughs> like we're getting into this weird territory. And so the idea um, that I'm, that's, we're sort of working on here is to say, all this information, all this quantifying, all this showing you your data is important if and only if it's working to the human fulfillment agenda, to the human agenda. It's got to get back to that inner, what's happening with the inner thing and how it knows itself. Um, so anyway, maybe we can start there on the next one because that's the place where I'm really trying to dig in and, uh, and, and really understand, cool. you know, how do you give the appropriate amount of information to help you on your own personal journey of understanding yourself and being happy and having good relationships and all the stuff I think we're trying to get to. Damn. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. That's such a good way to wrap. That's such a good, um, epistemic appropriateness. Very interesting. Yeah. And I, 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 uh, you know, I would, you know, suggest to people too, like, as I'm thinking about this, I'm doing this in my own life. I'm wearing, you know, something that's tracking my sleep. And the yeah. question is, is it actually making me have better sleep or not? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. urge you to think about it. Every single um, the, one of the most simple ones is this. It's the, this is one of the most simple ones, bro. Like, mm-hmm. uh, is it useful for you or not? And, and is it helping you be useful for other people? That's the question. (laughs) And actually everyone, I feel like everyone really knows deep in their heart because everyone has this experience when they finish scrolling that they go, damn, I just wasted so much time. Mm -hmm. Not, not all the time, not, not everyone all the time, but a lot of people, a lot of the time have that experience, which is, that's a big indicator. Um, Mm -hmm. So, wow. So, th- so then that's a pretty, like, let's look in um, and investigate that because it, there's, we're talking about neurotech and human flourishing, but the thing that billions of people have around the planet right now that is t- 
tech that directly influences neurology um, yep. is so saliently distracting us from potential actualizations um, that are uh, going latent or dormant because of the um, styles of programming and design that we've implanted with them. So there's a lot of these that just with epistemic appropriateness. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Um, beautiful. And also there's a links in the bio below as well. Um, let me actually, let me pull them up here on our second screen. So the first uh, link down in the bio is the Semilab. So that's uh, semilab.arizona.edu, um, Sonication Enhanced mindfulness, mindful Awareness. And you can find more information here about the team, about research, about some of the news. Oh, there's some good content on here. One of them is um, a recent Guardian video um, that was published on the work. That's a really strong short video. Highly recommend checking this out. Also, Jay giving us TEDx talk. Um, great interview. Um, uh, Guru Viking and also uh, Jay's talk at Brain Mind. So... Oh, yeah. And then there's also, so check this link out in the bio. And then there's also um, the Center for Consciousness. Um, and this is also a University of Arizona um, Center for Consciousness Studies. And here, this is, um, there's, this is um, uh, Roger Penrose and uh, Stuart Hamroff, right? They're both uh, deeply um, intertwined here. Yes. Yep. Yeah, Roger Pinner has uh, won the Nobel Prize last year, so we uh, dedicated a small, short conference to him this year. So it was all on black hole theory and consciousness, quantum consciousness, you know, these concepts. And uh, it's all free on YouTube, so I'd recommend watching. There's some awesome, awesome lectures and content on black holes and consciousness and, you know, sort of the edge of science in a sense. Yep, there they are. Um, oh, nice. These just went up a week ago. Yep. Uh, the conference was earlier in August. Uh, we just got all, all the content up. So good stuff. Nice. Very cool. Um, so very, very cool. Um, so guys, check this out as well. Um, so again, that's the Center for conscious studies and you can also find the link to the YouTube channel here as well and um, yeah and then also you can find uh, Jay's website as well so you have Jay's website as well um, link down there you can uh, go and follow um, him LinkedIn Twitter um, you can also go follow Shenzhen Young as well um, and Awesome. So let's uh, let's wrap. I'll get you get you going. Um, nice. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad we had some love in the comments. Thanks, fam. We love yeah, you so much. Great. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. 
Thanks for tuning in, guys. Um, we would love to hear your thoughts in the comments below also. So write us your thought in the comments. We would love to hear from you about the episode, about what Jay was sharing with us. Also, um, if you haven't yet, um, subscribe to the channel. Also, like the video as well. That helps the algorithm. Share the video with other people that you feel like this would profoundly influence on the synthesis of science and spirituality and neurotech to maximize human flourishing. And... Support Jay at the links below in the bio. And that is all, folks. Um, Jay, I'm going to end the stream, but stay in the studio for another minute with me, okay? All right. Well, thanks. This is, was a beautiful conversation. Great questions. And yeah, let's. I would do this every week if there was time. So let's do it again sometime soon. I love you so much, bro. We're on the exact same science spirituality. Actually, Shinzen Young, I believe, was the one that said that quote about it's the only trillion dollar idea is the synthesis of science spirituality. That's it's, right. Uh, so good. <laughs> We're on it. Ron, you'll see us back again soon, fam. Yeah, thank All you. Right. Much love. Thanks, Jay.